into Easter. So it, we're going to be in on this topic for uh, a little while, and we're titling this series the I Am series. Okay, The I Am series, and we're going to look through the seven different statements that are made throughout the book of John, the Gospel of John, where Jesus proclaims in his own voice, I am. Several different things, seven different things, actually. And the importance or the significance of the term I am comes from the correlation that it has with the Old Testament, where God describes himself as aser Okay. My Hebrew is terrible. I might be saying that wrong. But Jesus, when he's, or God, when he's talking to Moses through the burning bush, he says that I am who I am. And this, this term, I am who I am, is a statement that becomes eternally significant to the understanding of who God is. Okay? Behind it, there is a whole study that you can do about the terminology which he uses. This term, eche, right, is I am, or it is I am a state of being, to be. It's the, it's the verb, the verbiage of saying, this is my existence. And what, what God is proclaiming through the burning bush to Moses is that my eternal being is eternally significant. It had no creation from, it's been there from the beginning of time, and I am who I will always be. God is basically stating that he is all and in all and through all from the beginning of everything to the end of everything. He has no beginning and no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? How many of you guys have ever heard that term before? Okay? Some of you have. Some of you are like, okay, I've heard this before. This, this term for me was new because the way that I have typically heard this is in the term Yahweh. Right? Yahweh, we know this one as the tetragrammaton, right? Because in Hebrew, it has four characters. This little yod up here, there's four character. Oh, I don't want to go back yet. I'm going to use my little pointer. This little yod right here is a character. There's this character, there's this character, and then this character. In Hebrew, there's four characters, so they call it four grammatons, four characters, the tetragrammaton. Now, in the ancient Hebrew... Okay? They didn't have punctuate, or they didn't have vowels included in their writing, right? So in this one, where we have all these little dots, where in the, in the New Testament it says no jot or tittle will be removed from the writings, these are the jots and tittles, right? These little tiny dots, these are the vowels in the Hebrew language, okay? So when we look at Yahweh, or what we say as Yahweh, there is no vowelage on the bottom of the characters. So really, in essence, it could be Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Yahweh, right? It could be a lot of different pronunciations. The significance of this term, though, is that this is the third person of that Ehyeh. Okay, I'm getting real scholastic on you guys here, but if you follow me, Ehye is the I am in the first person, saying, I am who I am. This is God's voice coming from the burning bush, saying, I am who I am. 
when we refer to Yahweh, this is, this is God saying, the I am has sent me. It's referring to God in the third person, right? To me, I, I thought that was fascinating because the term that we typically refer to God as, the Yahweh, is in a third person form. In Hebrew, they don't use this vowelage or even these characters to describe God. They actually change this when they're reading it to say Jehovah. Okay? So if you were a Hebrew speaking the, the Hebrew language, you would read that as Jehovah. Okay? Now, when we go to the Ehye, the I am, this is where we turn to the I am statements of John chapter 6 is where he says it first. In Greek, they, they translate this as ego imi, which means I am. So when Jesus starts to make these um, identifying statements in Greek, right? When we read it in Greek, it says ego imi, okay? That's how the Greeks, that's how it was written in Greek. But he was probably speaking in Hebrew saying ehye, okay? So the term translated I am carries this, this significance in who Jesus is proclaiming to be because he's using the same terminology that God used when he explained himself to Moses in the Old Testament. Okay? So, when you hear him saying, I am, throughout the book of John, Jesus is making an extreme um, statement saying, I am God. And this is the way that I'm going to live. So throughout the book of John, there's seven of them, and he's going to unveil these unique aspects of his divine nature and the mission of his entire life. These are the statements that we're going to look at. I am the bread of life. We're going to look at that one today. Okay? I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. All right. This is, this is Jesus proclaiming to his disciples and to all the crowds around him who his divine character is and what the purpose of his living divine nature is as he walks on this earth and the eternal significance in which it means for us. I'm particularly excited about this series because we're coming out of the Kingdom of God series. All right? And if you guys were with us over the last four weeks, we sort of identified what God was saying through, from the beginning of Scripture, from Genesis, where he establishes the Kingdom of God here on earth through the Garden of Eden, all the way through the Bible. This, this theme arises, it raises up, right? We talked about what that looks like in Jesus, and then uh, Garrett spoke to us last week about mobilizing that sort of kingdom of God through putting on the armor of God. And we talked about Revelations 12 and the establishment of the whole new kingdom of God in the new heaven and earth. We've looked at this kingdom from the beginning of time to the end of time. And one of the strong things that I was trying to um, testify of in that last series is that God's kingdom is not something that is out there that is distant that we're praying for that's in the heavens, but it's actually a realm in which we can live in here now, 
right? That sometimes we get caught up in the birth of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, and we miss that entire timeline of his life here on earth. That yes, we celebrate the birth of Jesus in Christmas and, and we, we have this state in the Christian calendar where we celebrate his death and resurrection, but really he speaks to us for 30 years through his life and his mission here on earth and, and he puts words to that, that testimony of his life lived for three years and we have those years captured in the Gospels, in the Bible. Okay? So if you guys are new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are the testimony of Jesus' life lived out for us for three years of the ministries that he did. And we're going to look into what Jesus did on his time here on earth, during his time here on earth. And Jesus is going to make the claim that he is God and that his life is a living testimony of the goodness of God. Say that one more time, okay? Jesus is God. And he, in his life is a living testimony of the goodness of God. The goodness of God is displayed through the life of Jesus. So understanding the significance of these I am statements is, going, is hopefully going to deepen our appreciation for his divinity and the impact it has in our lives. Okay? I hope it challenges us to recognize Jesus as more than a, a teacher. He's more than a prophet. He's more than some good being that gave us an example. But his life lived should impact our lives lived. He offers salvation, guidance, and eternal life. Okay? So as we explore each of these statements in the coming weeks, I want our hearts to be open to the transformative power of encountering the true and living God in Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, I was away last week because I got to spend the weekend with 30 or 25 um, young adults up in, 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 what was that, Arnold area, and we were just covered in snow, right? We had, I think we had two feet or so of snow fall overnight. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And, I'm, and, and one of the messages that I preached to them that stuck with me was that it really only takes one encounter with the living God to transform your life forever. One encounter. One time. I, I knew for me, it was when I was 16 and I was in a similar setting, out in the snow, and I sat down and I prayed to God and I said, God, are you real? And he unveiled himself to me through the stars, and he spoke over me scripture and said, Jason, I, I know you by name. I know the hairs on your head. I knit you together in your mother's womb. And I was like, whoa. If I had nothing else in my life but that one experience with God, my life would be transformed forever. For Paul, he was knocked off his horse and he was blind and had an encounter with the living God and his life was transformed forever from Saul to Paul, a murderer of Christians, to an advocate of one of the largest missionary journeys ever. Right? Each of the disciples he called by name and said, come, follow me. And in the one encounter with Jesus, their entire lives changed for you, for you. I'm hoping that either through these, if you have not had one experience with God, 
I'm hoping that through the word of God, you will have an experience with God that transforms your life forever. Fortunately for me, that changed my life forever to where I could have significant moments reoccurring throughout my entire life where I meet with God and now they happen on an, an almost an everyday occasion where I can sit in the presence of God by reading his scripture, getting into worship and experiencing the transforming work of God in my life. Because I can read through what Jesus said, and as he speaks these words, it's like, whoa, I never saw that before. God, you are so good. God, you are so good. So whether you've never had that experience before or you have had it before and you're desiring another, if you want to have an experience with God, I'm praying that through the scriptures, you will hear God's voice speaking to you and calling out to you saying, I am the bread of life. The bread of life. So let's read it. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. God, you have declared that, you, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, holy divine and holy human that key theological point that you can relate with us in every way as a human being yet be holy god at the same time is what bridges the gap between us and god and god we place our entire hope in who jesus is the bread of life may we eat of it and never hunger may we drink of it and never thirst again we pray this in your name amen When Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life, it's important to get the the biblical context to what has just happened. If you want to open your Bibles to to John chapter 6, I won't read the whole thing, but you can see just as you, if you look through the, the title, there's like subtitles for sections of scripture. At the beginning of verse, or at the beginning of chapter 6, And this is true for each of the I am statements throughout the book of John. There is a relationship between a miracle that Jesus does and a statement that Jesus gives. The miracle that Jesus does in this statement of I am the bread of life is the feeding of the 5,000. So at the beginning of chapter 6, it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Okay, Jesus' life throughout all of the Gospels, you see him traveling throughout this area of Israel, healing the sick, healing the blind, healing the deaf, feeding thousands of people. And people started to follow him. These crowds started to gather because they would hear about what Jesus was doing. Right? And then in verse 3, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? 
Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, I'm a math teacher. That doesn't work, right? I mean, we teach in math and science that matter is not neither created nor destroyed, right? How do you have more than what you started with? Okay? They collected more than what they started with. And after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus started with a miracle. Right? He started with a miracle. On a side note, we see this crowd of people all the time, saying, I want to follow Jesus. Like, where is he? I want to I glean from all of this miraculous power that he has. And where do we see Jesus going? He's running away from the crowd all the time. You see him withdrawing from the crowd, and when the crowd catches him, he says, okay, hey, here, crowd, I'm going to give you what you're desiring. Here is a miracle. I am God. See you later. <laughs> right? And he pieces out. Because he's trying to show them, I am God. But you're not going to find me necessarily in the way that you're expecting in the crowd. In the crowd, you're going to see miraculous signs, miraculous power, miraculous wonderings of who God is. But if you really want to know him, you've got to seek him. You've got to follow him. You've got to go find him in the quietness of the mountains. You've got to be in that smaller group of people where you're saying, I'm sitting and I'm listening, I'm hearing. I'm not, being, I'm not just seeing this miraculous sign, this outward display of his miraculous power, but Jesus does start there, right? Jesus starts by providing the physical needs of sustenance for them. In this, as he continues, we're going to skip over that section of walking on water, which was cool, but we're just going to skip it. Okay. And go down to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? He walked across the water. He found them, right? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Okay? The miraculous signs were a display of his power, but the filling of their soul came through the bread that God provided. It came through the nourishment of their physical bodies. Yes, it was miraculous in the way that it happened, but it met a specific need that the body was desiring. They didn't know it, but he filled it. He does this often. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? This is, this is the hard part with miraculous signs. We see them and we want more. 
The disciples even saw them. They're like, what, what else do we need to do to see these miraculous signs? And, he, and I think that what he, he continues to say to them is, don't get caught up in that. Yes, it's a display of my power, but really, I'm going to give you everything that you need. I am the bread of life is what he's going to proclaim here. He says, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So much, so much in this, in this one verse. Okay, let me read it again. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Um, Jesus the bread of life, satisfies our deepest spiritual hunger and offers eternal life to all who believe in him. I got a, a text this morning um, from one of my good friends and his daughter, if you know Adam Ferry, his little daughter Madison asked him this morning as they were coming back from fishing, he said, she, she said, she asked dad, dad, did God create the world or did he just bring it to life? I was like, oh, that's beautiful coming from a nine-year-old. Did God create the world or did he just bring it to life? My answer to him was yes. <laughs> yes, God did create the world, but he's also the one that brings it to life. In this giving of the bread of life, he has given life to the world. In order to understand the significance of I am the bread of life, you have to understand the context in which Jesus is speaking here. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews who know the story of Moses and the provision of manna throughout the wilderness, right? For 40 years, the only thing that the Jews ate, or the, sorry, the Hebrews ate, I'm not supposed to call Jews, the Hebrews ate was manna and water. The argument can be made that you can live on bread and water, because the Hebrews did it for 40 years. All they ate, manna and water. I listened to this lady, some of you may know her, her name's Sue Becker. She's like a food, Scientologist, or food scientist who has studied the, the beauty and the, the um, nutritional significance of bread, Right? Bread, actually, in its purest form, can sustain our bodies, except for four other um, minor nutritional deficiencies. Bread has almost everything that we need in it, if it's in its natural form. The problem with us in America and in processed food world is that we take out a lot of the nutrients that are in bread, right? So if you look at a whole wheat, and this is from like organic um, grains, in those organic grains, you will find your proteins, your healthy fats, your carbohydrates, your calciums, your phosphorus, your iron, your potassium, your, I don't even know how to say the rest of those, right? But they're there. They're all there. And, but in the white, unriched, unenriched flours, all, a lot of those are taken out. And she goes into the whole science of it. And I thought it was beautiful because I, I'm a baker, like, I like making bread. If you guys don't know me, I worked at Chit Chat for a while. I made cinnamon rolls. 
Those are not healthy, but they're delicious, okay? The, the flour that we are using is white enriched flour because FDA said, hey, if, if we're going to make um, flour and we're going to take out all the good stuff, we got to make sure that we add iron, thiamine, riboflavin, and niacin, those four that have the asterisks on it. They take all the good stuff out and then they put in uh, synthetic other good stuff to make it enriched. Right? The argument is they take out 35 of the good vitamins and nutrients and minerals out of your whole grains, and they replace it with this synthetic other kind of good stuff. Now, I by no means am, am disciplined enough to eat healthy foods all the time, but I love and admire the science behind it. And if I knew how to do this and was disciplined enough to do it, I would be 100% behind eating whole grain, whole milled, delicious, good-for-you bread. It can sustain you nutritionally, right? In these nutrients, you can kind of see what happens when, if you store these grains, these grains will store forever. They, not forever, but for a very, very long time. When you look back at the story of Daniel, and they said, fill up your storehouses with grain, they filled them with grain because when they're whole and they haven't been processed and milled, it can last for years and years and years. It's when you mill it and when you hold it, it starts to decrease in its nutritional value. After a day, this is how much of these are lost. That's why the manna that was provided by God was only good for a day because after a day, all of the nutritional value started to deplete and it, and it recurs again the next day. So after one day, all of the nutritional value behind it is gone. So the manna that they were eating throughout the desert, throughout the wilderness, was only good for one day. And in order to survive on that bread and on that manna, they had to trust God every every single day to provide something new for them. Because the manna that they picked the day before was no longer good the next day. This is significant to know because the key point behind that entire 40 years of Moses' life traveling through the desert is that they had to trust in God every single day or else they would die. Their bodies would not be able to sustain themselves. The nutrients would not be there and provided for their bodies to last as they walked through the desert. The water had to come from the rock and had to flow so that they had bread and water that they could live on every single day. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying that he satisfies not only our deepest spiritual hunger, he is offering eternal life to all of those who believe in him. The statement of I am the bread of life is a statement saying I am going to sustain you from this day until the end of all days. But you have to trust me. If you want to receive this eternal life, you have to trust me. So what? This, this is the why. This is, this is what Jesus is proclaiming in this. If you want to respond, you have to recognize your spiritual hunger. Are you actually hungry for God? I know when I get hungry physically, my stomach starts to turn a little bit, and I feel that pain in my side. I get it about 8 o'clock every morning. You guys get that? Right? And I'm like, oh, man, I really want a bowl of cereal right now. And I feed myself 
because it hurts not to have it. What does it feel like if you are spiritually deprived? Do you recognize the symptoms of not eating your spiritual food? The sermons that we listen to, the spiritual filling of the Word of God, it acts a lot like food. I can't tell you what I ate three weeks ago, but I know I ate because I was alive and I'm thriving and I'm living. I might not be able to tell you what sermon I listened to three weeks ago, but it filled my spiritual body in a way where the hunger pain for God, the spiritual hunger for God was filled. I like to eat every morning. I also like to listen to worship, to pray, to get in my word. It fills my spiritual desire. If we want to fix our spiritual hunger for Jesus, we must have Jesus as our sustenance. Our sustenance. He's the one who carries us through all of our spiritual need. And then lastly, we trust in Jesus' promises. He says, I am the bread of life. And in that offering, he says, I'm going to fill you every single day. One of the ways that we, we remember this is through communion. And I know that we took communion last week, but I wasn't here. So I want to take it again. And it's not that this is a tradition that we do once a month. It's that when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're recognizing that Jesus is the bread of life. That Jesus is the one who fills us, that meets our spiritual needs. And when we do it together, we're saying that this congregation, this group of people in this room, whoever eats of this, whoever drinks of this, is proclaiming that Jesus is the bread of life that sustains us. He's the one that fills our hunger. With that, I'm going to go ahead and invite the, the worship team to come on up. I'm going to pray, and uh, we can take communion together as a, a symbol of Jesus being our bread of life. Okay, let's, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your life. For your life lived out and recorded through Scripture that proved to us and shows us and encourages us, feeds us in a way that no one else or nothing else ever can. God, we know that you fed 5,000 men and their families with a basket of bread and a couple fish. It's easy, Lord, to meet our physical needs. We all have them. God, I, I do pray that you would meet the physical needs of everyone in this church, ailments, sicknesses. We need your physical touch, your healing. We desire that. But even more so, God, even more than the physical ailments in our lives that prevent us from doing certain things or being in certain places, we desire more deeply a fulfilling of our spiritual hunger God, may we not be able to go a single day without encountering the presence of God. God, I pray that through Scripture, through the reading of the Word, that you would unveil the truths and the mysteries of this world. That you would unveil the, the beauty of, of your love and your grace and your compassion. 
your faithfulness to us, your promises, God. I pray that you would be the sustenance that, that sustains us when our, our hearts are weak and our minds are weak. May you be the strength. May you be all those nutrients and vitamins and minerals that, that our bodies need and our souls need in order to thrive and survive. God, you gave us an example through communion to eat together. And I pray, Lord, that as we eat from this, this bread and we drink from this cup, we would remember that you are the Christ. You are the bread of life. I pray this in your name. Amen.